Welcome to 20 Not Something, the podcast for 20-somethings who haven't quite figured out what their something is yet. It's time to celebrate this messy decade and to reassure you that everything turns out all right in the end, because doing something in your 20s can actually mean doing anything that makes you happy. Today, I am joined by the legendary Nigel Redman. There are many words I could use to describe this man. Athlete, father, mentor, husband, coach. But the one word which I feel personally sums him up is dedicated. Nigel's dedication to rugby has led him onto a very fulfilling and exhilarating career. Making his first cap for England at just 20 years old, his decade was spent training, supporting his teammates and adapting to the ever-challenging lifestyle of becoming an international athlete. By the end of his 20s, Nigel had played in two World Cups, was voted England's best player of the year and had beaten the formidable All Blacks team. But what many of us don't see are the other successes Nigel achieved in this decade. When speaking to him about his most notable memories, believe it or not, rugby featured on less than half of the list. Nigel also got married, bought a house, travelled, finished training for an electrical engineering apprenticeship, worked as a sales rep and celebrated the birth of his first child. Now, if that's not a decade to celebrate, then I don't know what is. Despite Nigel's rugby career spanning nearly double that of the average at that time, when he retired in 1999, he came to a crossroads which all athletes ultimately have to face. Retirement. But in true Nigel style, showing yet again a tumultuous dedication to UK sport, he followed down the coaching path in a bid to help other athletes achieve their goals and dreams. Nigel now works as a consultant and people developer across many sports and organisations, most recently acting as elite coach developer for British Olympic swimming. I'm sure to many of us, Nigel's story seems a little unrelatable and quite far from the ordinary 20-something lifestyle. Not many of us can say we've played in a stadium in front of 80,000 people. But there is something to be said for how we perceive our goals and what we want from this decade. When we look back, we can learn that what people might consider to be the small accomplishments in life may actually be the things we treasure the most. Nigel, welcome to 20 Not Something. Hello, Emma. How are you? (laughs) Yes, very well, thanks. How are you? Um, I'm very well, and thank you for that introduction. No, no worries. It's it's so wonderful to have you here. I'm I'm excited to get a real taste of what it's like in your extremely busy shoes. <laughs> um, so I thought I'd just dive straight in with the first question. Um, going back to sort of teenage Nigel, what did he want most from his twenties? Um, very good question. The I think the first thing I wanted was. Um, to be in a regular um, employment. I, I, I'll be honest mm. with you, Emma, I never had, never been a person to have goals. So, uh, and by not really having those goals allowed me to to explore opportunities as they came along. Um, mm. it's, it's funny, actually, because my, my wife always wanted to be a teacher. So she knew what she needed in order to, to get that. And, and with me, because I never really knew what was available i was quite quite a shy teenager um and then from a sporting perspective found that quite late and just immersed myself in it and and to be fair i never even you know you've asked that question i i I can't honestly say that i was expecting anything from my 20s when i was a teenager um (laughs) i was just literally focusing on on what i was doing um the, the, the biggest decision I made, I suppose, as a as a teenager was was not to stay employed with the employer where I'd finished my apprenticeship, for example. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that is really interesting because I, I, you know, follow a lot of international athletes and they're always talking about how goal oriented they are. You know, it's um, something which is all ingrained in them. So that's really interesting that you said back then that that didn't really occur to I, you. I've never had, I don't think, a conscious goal where I think wow. that's something I want to work to. My, my, after saying that, my, my biggest thing was particularly throughout my late teens, early 20s, well, throughout my 20s, was just to develop and get better. Um, mm. And so I just spent my time and I, I thought, so for instance, I never had a, you know, going um, through my teenage years, you know, many people might say, my big goal is I want to rep- I want to play for England. Um, mm. But in fairness, I was born in South Wales. So representing England wasn't one of those goals which which I had. And I, and I, I thought, representing anybody at international level was so far outside of my remit that why would I have that as a goal? Um, and that, right. uh, does that make sense? So, yeah, but, but the thing is I run goal setting for, for coaches, for people. And because so many people get, get something from that exercise, I was asked mm-hmm. recently whether I did the same thing. And I said, well, you know, I've I've never really sat down and and looked at it like that. Um, mm. Now, on reflection, I may have set goals and I may not have just realised I was doing that, but I can't consciously tell you that I sat down, wrote, wrote a list of the things that I would like to achieve in my twenties, and then and then strategically worked out how I was going to do that. Because my, mm. my big thing, my big thing was right. Um, I've discovered uh, I've discovered this sport who allows which allows me to cr- represent myself if you like and uh and then it was a case of breaking it down and thinking what what can I do to actually get the most out of this now there are people out there who might say well that's set in a set of goals but there was nothing um there's nothing that I can think of which said I wanted so if you look at goals from us you know, specific measurable perspective, there was there was nothing that I can think of which was specific or measurable. There was just mm. a daily desire to be better than I was the previous day. I think that is so important though, because you know, at the end of the day you're living life for yourself and to to just have the aim to be better anyway is 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 so important. How did you then get from, you know, sort of wanting to get better every day to then playing internationally because did did that just occur because you were getting better or did you was there a certain jump where you felt oh gosh I'm into it now my, my, my okay so from a philosophical view my my belief is that we life throws up certain questions and we have choices so I'll give you an example I, I started playing rugby at the age of 15 I played internationally for a for a country where I wasn't born less than five years later. Now, I never set out and said, I need to do this in year one, two, three, four, and, and then I'll be ready to play international rugby in five years' time. I'll tell you how it started. I was invited to play a game by, by a friend. Um, I was at a, a reasonably new school. We just moved into the area, and I went home and said to my sister, uh, I've been I've been asked to go and play for for the town Western Western Superman. She said, Are "You go," and I said, "I don't know." And she said, "You know, you're a big old lump. 
You know, why don't you get off the settee and go down and 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 you know and play a game? I'd never played the sport before. I played the game. I didn't have a clue really what I was doing, but I enjoyed. I enjoyed. I enjoyed what it. I enjoyed the the feeling of team. I enjoyed the people, and so I I decided. And this is this, you asked the question. So I decided to go for a run. I'd never really. My experience of running was as a child at school. Uh, well, I was still at school, but. I was not very good at running. You know, um, I did the first four years at a, a secondary modern school in Macclesfield in Chester, where we had, whenever we went out on a cross-country run, I was always last, and the PE teacher would hit me with his uh, dap or, you know, oh my God. the entire way around, cause, and, and, and just telling me to, to get a move on. So I thought, right, I'll, I'll go for a run. I ran, uh, I ran about 400 metres, I suppose, from my house and collapsed in a heap. And when I talk about choices, my choice then was, do I walk home and, and just knock it on the head or do I continue to run? And my choice was, do you know what? I'm going to continue to run because it's not something I'm not very good at and wouldn't it be great if I was better at this? So I decided mm. to run. And, and when I talk about choices, that's the choice I had, to go home or to continue running. I chose to continue running. I continued to run eventually. The following day got very sore. But then I've, I've got a choice. Do I go out and do that again, or do I just stay at home and cope with my sore legs? And I made the choice to go out and run again. And mm-hmm. throughout throughout my teenage and years preparing myself, I suppose, the 20s, it's just a series of choices. You know, yeah. things, things like um, – and curiosity as well. I, I, I've always been curious um, by nature. So I've always wanted to know how things how things work. So wow. you know, when I started running, then I thought, right, uh, Emma, I wasn't very good at sport. Do you know what I mean? I I, I was overweight. Um, I'd, I I loved sport, but I wasn't very good at it. So you know, being curious, it's things like, um, right, uh, I've been thrown and I was put into this position of. Um, a second row forward. I didn't really understand it. I knew that I had to jump and catch a ball. So mm. I thought, how would I be better at this? So again, I I made a conscious decision, a choice to go and join a basketball club. I said, I don't want to play for you, but I want to I want to learn how to handle a ball in the air. I joined a volleyball club because I wanted to jump. I joined. I joined. And I, again, I didn't want to. I didn't want to play for them. I just wanted to train with them. I just wanted to experience the training and breaking down, I suppose, of this game that that I'd become really interested in. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There was no. But that that's such initiative to take at that age to sort of be like, okay, this is something I've, I'm I, going to work towards, and and I'm going to try and do everything I can to do that. My, my question would be, though, I mean, you know, with this program being about 20-somethings and millennials, you know, mm. I don't think the ability to make choices has been taken away. Um, mm. I would like to think that those choices are still there for people. It's it's now a case of, you know, identifying what are the choices and then and then really committing to it. Yeah. So when you did make your first cap, obviously 20 years old, did you feel the pressure? Um, were you excited? Was it terrifying? What, what was that feeling? Um, I think it was 
again, I wasn't terrified. Um, was I excited? I was. I was quite surprised to a certain degree because <laughs> because in those days um, we were told that people don't start to mature until their late twenties, early thirties, and certainly the the people in my position were all of of that age. I suppose them sort of mid to late twenties, early thirties. Um, it was. I was unemployed, so that was interesting. I was actually on the dole. Um, and played for England. I don't know if that happens now, but uh, probably not. Um, well, how, how was I feeling? I sort of there was there was definitely a feeling of imposter because I hadn't played that much. I'd only played a hand. Uh, I think it was fifteen, sixteen games for Bath um, at that point. Uh, I was a teenager for all of that, uh, mm-hmm. and I played um, the end of the season. I played in. Bath's first cup final. So again, I was a teenager playing in a cup final, but I, I was still, I was still making my way and establishing myself at the Bath Club. I still didn't feel part of that. And then all of a sudden, I was selected to play play for England. Some of my family couldn't understand why I opted to play for England because they obviously were all were all born in Cardiff, and I still have family down there. Um, mm. But I just saw it as part of the progression. Um, I played county the year before. I played for England at twenty at nineteens at twenty threes, and then this just was another progression to my to my progression. And so, mm. obviously, you know, you, you turn up in those days. We most of the guys were working. I was, I was, as I said, I was unemployed. So you sort of met on a Thursday, trained Friday, trained, played Saturday. Um, Did you struggle with that? Um- Obviously, if if a lot of your teammates had work to go back to and you at the time didn't, was that something you struggled with, or did you just take it on the chin and was like, "Oh, it's okay, I'll I'll figure it out"? Mm, not really, because again, it was my choice. I had a choice mm. when I finished my apprenticeship to I didn't want to continue to work at that particular place, so I um and mainly because it did shift work, and I knew that if I was going to do shifts. It would impact on my ability to play mm-hmm. sport, even as an amateur. So I actually went on tour with Bath and stayed in North America and just travelled a bit. And then I decided to come back for the start of the season. Um, and I'm glad I did because um, Australia were over on tour. I played for the Southwest against them. And then I was selected on that performance to play for England. But wow. I, n- I never really thought about my status at that point. I just... My feeling was that it was at that time it was the right thing. Um, mm. There was some of the armed forces wanted to recruit me at that point because you know back in the eighties there was a huge well there probably still is there was a huge emphasis in the armed forces on their sport and I know one in particular wanted to sign me up and uh, they two very very senior figures within one of the services attended the after match dinner and tried to recruit me. Um, but even then, Emma, I said, I went to the interview and, and I sat through an interview in Bristol. I won't tell you which, which armed forces it was, but <laughs> I, I had a call from a very, very senior figure within the, that particular armed forces after the interview and said, uh, are you all signed up now? And, and I said, no, because there were people in that room who desperately wanted to be part of your particular, like, uh, uh, part of the armed forces. And, and I said, I, I, I don't. Mm. And I don't want to take the place of somebody 
who is desperate and has wanted this mm. for such a long time. It wouldn't be right if I took their place because I, 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 I don't want it like they want it. You know, it would just be mm. – and they said, yeah, yeah, but it's just for the sport. And I said, I don't think that's the right reason to, to join. So yeah, um, so I made that choice there and then. Mm. And so then going through your rugby career, I, I mean, everyone always says, you know, you need such physical strength to be a rugby player, you know, what with the rehab of your muscles and – but surely it must take a, a huge mental toll as well. And I just wanted to ask you how you coped, you know, mentally and physically through what is such a challenging career. Ah, uh, it's a good question. But again, the answer probably is because I'd made that decision to do it, then the mental side was never, for some reason, was never a problem for me. Um, the, the mindset of get, getting myself up for a game training, um, you know, even though in the in the start of it, it was it was amateur, so we only had two official training sessions. I was training every morning before breakfast and every evening um, before I went to bed. You know, I would I would indulge myself into either weight training or, or running or some something. As far as um, so as far as the training physical. Um, I I didn't find that a problem. As I said, I, I was I would try I was looking and exploring everything I could do in order to develop myself physically. And and I was naturally one of the smallest players in my position. Um so again it was it was another obstacle to overcome which which I think suited my curiosity and 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 drive for self development from a mental side. Crikey, I never found it that mentally challenging, to be honest. Um, because it, again, it was something that I'd committed myself to doing, and don't think I was ever challenged from a from a mental perspective. How did you find balancing your sort of personal life along with the rugby? Um, at the start, I never really had a personal life because I I just in, I just literally. Um, immerse myself in clubs and training. After work on a Monday, it would be bath training. On a Tuesday, I'd do weights. Then I'd go to Western Supermarket because I was still living down there, training. And then I'd go, uh, and then I'd train there till sort of half eight and then go to water polo training, of all things. On a Thursday, <laughs> I'd, I'd go to boxing training. You know, then there was volleyball, there was basketball, there was, oh, honestly, just, just you know. So, from a social perspective, it wasn't until I met my my wife now when I was when I was twenty twenty one, mm. and she come from she loves sport. Come from a she, she actually went, went to Loughborough. Um, she did sports <laughs> science. Now a teacher. She, you know, she incredibly supportive with my sport, um, mm. and I don't think. I don't think I could have had that balance if it wasn't for her and her attitude to it. You mm. know, she was more demanding on on a on a personal level about either going out or not going training, then I would have had to make another choice. As it mm. was, I never had to make that choice because she was so supportive. That's that's really lovely and really necessary as well. Yeah, but, but I, I want to be very clear. She was supportive and she had her own life as well. 
it wasn't supportive in a way that she gave everything up to follow me. She continued to drive to be a teacher. She played her own sport. But what she didn't do was make demands from my perspective, which stopped me doing my stuff, if that makes Mm. sense. Which is so important in a partnership as well, to be able to both follow your own dreams without being too cliche, you know, without sort of having an effect on the other. I like the term partnership. I think... I think it was weighed more towards what I was doing. I think I'd be silly if I didn't see that. Um, but again, you know, not, it didn't stop her doing what she wanted to do either. Mm. I love that in the list you sent me about your most notable memories of your 20s, that they weren't all rugby focused. And it struck a chord with me because I think we can get so caught up on achieving our financial and career goals that we don't really appreciate at the time how we perceive the more generic things that happen, you know, like buying a house, not that buying a house is by any means a small thing. Um, Is that something that you considered a success at the time or is it something that you look back on and retrospectively think like, oh, I I achieved all of this other stuff as well? No, I think it was a huge thing because we couldn't Mm -hmm. afford it. So I was was an electrician. My wife was a teacher. We wanted to buy a house together and we wanted to buy one – you know, we wanted to buy a flat in Clifton to start with in Bristol, couldn't afford that, then found a house on the outskirts of Bristol, um, at which we, we couldn't really afford. Um, mm. So, you know, we, we did things like, and I know this sounds, you know, we, we bought two bikes and gave the car up, and uh, that sounds fine. But remember, I, I had tools, I had training, so sometimes I would run to work and then stop off, and by that time I was – Training with a wrestling coach in Bristol, so I would, mm. I would, uh, I would do some Olympic wrestling on my way home, and then my <laughs> wife would pick me up, or, or I'd, I'd get on my bike and, and, and cycle. But again, we made choices, and you know, we wanted to because I, I had a building background, it meant that we could renovate it. And when it came to selling it, we probably got more, and it was an easier sell. But no, I think it's a huge, I think it's a huge thing to, mm. you know, because because of the. Because of the, the the financial choices, I think someone has to make. You know, neither myself or my wife had families that could support us and help us in in that sense. Uh, we both come from working class backgrounds, mm. and and so I think, you know, very proud of the fact that you know managed to buy my first house in Bristol. We renovated it, we lived in it, it became our home, and then when it was time to move to Bath in nineteen ninety three. You know, we we couldn't afford to move to Bath, Emma. So we had to buy. We actually bought a derelict house in Bath that no one had lived in for five, six, seven years. So wow. it, had, it had no electric, no gas. It actually had a bay window at the front, which had been bomb damaged from the Second World War, that we had to get fixed before we could get our full mortgage. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had our first child on the way. We just. I worked on the house when I wasn't working or when I wasn't training and we got it up to, you know, in fact, when my son was born, we didn't, we didn't actually have a kitchen. So my wife had to stay in hospital for five days after the birth because there was some minor complications and I had to get our kitchen installed while she was in hospital so that when she came home with the new babe, you know, the house was, was ready. Um, but again, they're just things you prioritize, you make choices, and you just get mm. on with stuff. Mm. 
And I think the pattern which which I'm seeing just talking to you is just around, you know, what's important and, and make a choice and commit to it. And mm. I, I suppose that's that's what I've done throughout my life is is think about things, then decide what I'm going to do, prioritise, make a choice, and just, just do it, just get on with it, put everything I can into it. And never look back? I never, no, not really. Never, I don't think I, I look back and, and think, oh, if only, uh, very, very rarely. Mm. So coming to, coming to the end of your rugby career then, yeah. um, obviously there's always a lot of talk around retirement and I know athletes often find it quite difficult to readjust. Um, how, what were your feelings around retirement? Well, it was very interesting because we'd started uh, the professional rugby then and my contract was running out. But because I'd never I'd never done a contract negotiation before other than my first negotiation, I didn't have an agent. I did everything myself. And I just, we were, you know, crikey. I was just used to playing out a season and then going on holiday and then coming back for pre-season. Mm. And I, I never had a contract extension. Um, my body was falling apart. I had... Five, I had five general anaesthetics in my last 12 months. So I was coming to the end of the season and I'd had a knee operation in Shropshire and a shoulder operation in Reading and the season was just coming to a finish. So I had, a, I had an inquiry because, again, I, I hadn't looked beyond the end of the season because I don't, I, you know, I, as I said before, I've never, never had a goal. So... I was contemplating, you know, what do I do? I'd had offers from different clubs. I'd not had an offer from Bath, but I never really thought about whether that was good or bad. It was just, they just hadn't discussed it with me. So I had a conversation just before I had my shoulder operation with, um, I'd made, I had made the decision that I wanted to to go into coaching. um, And I felt I wanted to learn how to do it rather than just be thrown in. So, Mm. When I had my shoulder operation in Reading, um, during the pre-op, I had an interview in my hospital room with Basingstoke Rugby Club. Um, And that was the sort of first inkling of, actually, if I did call it a day now, I've got a coaching job that I can go into. Did you find that transition... Um, obviously not an easy one, but being a coach, having been a player who'd been coached, do you think that's had a positive impact on how you perform as a coach? The thing, the thing is, I'd, I'd, I think when you're coaching or when you're being coached, one of the things I was lucky is that at Bath, the way we were coached was through questions and through you know what ifs, what if we did this, what if we did that, rather than you know, ultimate direction, and the players then were allowed to work things out, which was a terrific um, environment. It's just that to get to that point takes time and it takes takes evolution. You can't just go out and figure it out straight away. It's as a sports person, I think the the ability to to ex- to explore and experiment and trust the people around you. It's sort of it, it takes takes time. Does take time. I think mm. when I went to coaching, I I wanted the players to express themselves. I wanted them. I've always felt that I wanted people to 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 explore and experiment, 
But of course now, you know, there's there's leagues, there's you know, you want to win games, but I still felt that you could you could you could win leagues and and play a type of rugby that or type of sport that people enjoyed playing. Um mm. and so that's that's where I brought I was probably more directive then, straight out of playing. I was probably less patient. I was probably mm. more opinionated. I actually I really enjoyed my first year of coaching. Um the people down in Basingstoke were brilliant. The first thing I did, Emma, was make the club an amateur club again. So I told the players that they weren't getting paid for playing, that they wanted if they wanted to stay at the club, they they had to do it because they wanted to represent Basingstoke, not because they were getting paid. And wow. everyone committed to it. And so what a, what a great place to start when everybody turns mm-hmm. up because they want to be there rather than, you know, they're being paid to train or paid to play. Or Because mm-hmm. my, my feeling was if you, if you wanted to be a professional, then, then go, and, go and play for somebody in the higher leagues. You know, this, mm-hmm. this, this town, this club, my, my feeling was, you know, learn to love the game, represent the town, and do it in a, in a way we can all be proud of. Yeah. I'm intrigued to get your opinion on this next question because I was once at an athletic event and two coaches were comparing two athletes and one of them said that one of the athletes will never be as good as the other one because they have a natural talent. And I think the term gets thrown around a lot. And I'm just interested to ask you, obviously coming from someone who couldn't even run 400 meters to being an international athlete, how true do you think that is? Yeah, I wish I had. My natural talent was that I had a reasonably high threshold to pain, which which isn't something I look back on. Think, <laughs> I, you know, I I wish I was quicker. I wish I had more endurance. I wish I was stronger. You know, if I was a if I was a uh, a video game, you mm-hmm. know, my my super strength was that I I could play while hurt and no one would know. Um, mm. And so when you talk about people with natural talent, oh, look, I just think I think an attitude and a mindset can take you an awful long way. You know, mm. if you've got natural talent, brilliant, use it. If you've got natural talent and a terrific mindset, wonderful. You know, but I, but I think it's, it's one of those things that when you see the two in, in tandem, you know, you do really do see somebody who's, He's a superstar, mm. but there's levels. Do you know what I mean? And I think all you can do is, is, is get the most out of what you've got. Um, and so do I believe it? Yeah, I think I think natural talent does it. Well, not natural. I think people still work at it. Mm. Um, I think people, you know, were there more athletic players than me? Yeah, of course there were. I was, as I said, I, I, I literally struggled to run um, <laughs> very far. But then do you, do, you, do you work on it or do you just resign yourself to the fact you can't do it? And my view was, well, I'm not particularly good at it, but I'll get better. So as mm-hmm. I say, it's defining natural talent. because, And I suppose this is where in sports you get people who define logic. So um, in rugby union, people like a Jason Robinson or a Shane Williams well, they were probably told from a very young age they were far too small to play rugby union um, mm. or rugby league. Yet their mindset and their athletic ability proved those people wrong. Um, and I think with anything like that, why can't our natural talent 
be our attitude to to to, to getting something as better as it best it can. Do, do, do you, do you know think what I mean? that? Yeah. Do you think that um, corresponds to general life as well, not just in sport? I th- personally, yes, I do. Mm. I think mm. a lot of that re- responds because the thing is with attitude, you can't, you don't see it straight away. Do you know what I mean? Whereas a natural talent on a pitch or or on a court or on a track, someone can go, "Wow, really talented." Apart from you know, with mindset, you might have to work with somebody for a bit to understand that actually your natural talent is your attitude to training, your attitude to, to development, your attitude to being better tomorrow than you were today. Do you know mm. what I mean? That can still be a natural talent. It's just not a physical or a skill-based talent, but it can that can can also be formidable. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. you can be you can be good enough physically, but if you've got an, an absolute A plus mindset, just think what that does as a multiplier to the good enough physical. Physical. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It makes that much so much better. Um, yeah, and that's why it's great to work with people who've got real positive mindsets. Mm. Wow, thank you so much, Nigel. That's such a nice note to um, round up on. You can do anything you set your mind to, as they say. <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not so sure whether I'm one of these people who says, you know, um, you can do anything you put your mind to, because there will be there will be barriers. But then it's how you overcome those barriers in order to to, to get as much out of it as you you can. I think mm-hmm. it's too easy to say you can be whoever you want to be. Um, Although I do like the saying, you know, um, if you believe you can or if you believe you can't, you're probably right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I mean? I, yeah. I am a believer. I, I do sort of look at that um, and think I, I quite quite like that. But, mm. look, you know, I'm not saying if everyone believes they can be an international athlete, it will happen to everyone. In the mm. same way as some of these books that have promoted 10,000 hours, you know, with some things you can spend your life doing and you still might not be good enough. You know, mm-hmm. but, but it, I think it's as I say, it's the it's the positive intent, and for me, and then saying right, you know, I'm going to commit to it. Do you know, I've seen I've seen people succeed now at Olympic Games, and I've seen people finish fourth by hundreds of a se- hundredth of a second. And, and I was talking about it today, and you know, one of the things which which I look at athletes, both whether they play team sport or whether they play individual sports. And for me, you know, if an athlete has the courage to commit to something completely and having to live with the fact that they may come forth by 800th of a second, but no, they couldn't have done more, then I would have suggested that that was far better than those athletes who come forth and have to live the rest of their life thinking, do you know what, I think I could have done a bit better. Mm. If only I'd have done this, if I'd have done that, if... If I'd have committed a bit more, if I'd have listened a bit more, that you know, that's that's for me, and I think it does take courage. I think it takes yeah. courage to 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 do it, knowing that you could do it and still perceive to be a failure. If that makes sense. Right, we're going to play uh, Millennial Minesweeper now. Um, so right. just to refresh, I'm just going to read you three quotes, and you've got to tell me whether you think they've been published or. Um, whether I've made them up. <laughs> um, so no pressure. But no. the first one I thought was quite uh, topical for this our chat. So more than half of young people say that owning their own home is one of their top life goals. Do you reckon that's made uh, up or 
I think you've just made that up. No, I actually haven't. So that was published on Moneywise in a right. in a um article called Just One in Four Young People Will Get Onto the Property Ladder by 2026. Um But I found that interesting for now because I, I don't know whether, you know, goals have changed, but um I wouldn't say that it's one of my personal goals, but I mean, as as we've discussed, it it was definitely one of yours. So it's interesting. Yeah. See, I've got I've got two children in their twenties and another one who's seventeen. One was desperate to get his own house, and now he lives over the road. My daughter, who's in university down in Brighton, I'm not sure whether it's high on her agenda to own her own home mm. at this moment yeah. in time. So yeah. times are changing, I think, and because it's so expensive. Yeah, the reason the reason you know, I, I sort of did my, I sort of grew up, if you like, through my 20s when Thatcher was the Prime Minister who talked about, you know, the desire and the, uh, you know, to, people wanted to own their own homes. And I think they made, they tried to make, or well, they did the, the council scheme, I think, at that time, where people mm. could buy their own house if they'd. And so I suppose it was a big thing for me. And I wasn't sure whether it was, uh, was so high. And I, I, my, my feeling was, Emma, that you made that up based on one of my things, which, which was... <laughs> Own my own house in my twenties. So mm. well, well done. You got me. You got me. <laughs> so our next one is: your twenties are the time for persevering and planning instead of pampering and partying. <laughs> um, that sounds like it was written by somebody in their fifties. Um, <laughs> well, if you'd class me as being in my fifties, then you'd be right because that was me. <laughs> yeah. No, I was going to. I was. You know, it sounds like it sounds like uh, it sounds like something. Like, I don't know whether I would write that, but yeah, go on. You got me. I again. mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I just I get it from a lot. I read a lot of these articles, and there's so many about you know you need to use this time to plan your future, blah blah blah. But do you believe in that statement, or did you just make it up to be? Um... Uh, I made it up because I like the P alliteration, but that was it. Oh, right. <laughs> I, I think a good balance is good, but also if you don't want to party, then don't then don't go and party. And if you don't want to plan, then don't plan. I feel like it's your life; you do what you want with it. <laughs> yeah. Um. And so our final one is, um, this is a generation rapidly losing faith in their ability to achieve their goals in life. Crikey! I think that's been published. Yeah, it has. It was a pretty difficult article to read, to be honest. Um, it was actually based on research carried out by the Prince's Trust um, right. in an article called Young People Struggle to Cope with Setbacks as Happiness Falls to Lowest Levels in a Decade. Um, yeah, well, it'd be interesting to know what they're basing that on. Mm. And, and also interesting to be brought up in this uh, chat because obviously you said that you didn't really goal plan and I, I, look, I, 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 I didn't, I never really, my wife says I'm the luckiest person she knows. And I said, well, <laughs> well she said, cause you haven't really planned for anything. And I just think I haven't, but I've kept my mind open. I've kept, um, a sort of, uh, I've kept my, from a philosophical possession, possession, I've been remained curious um and i've just i've just said yes to things you know even if i thought i couldn't do it i've just gone do you know what yeah let's i'll do that i'm just just you know just taking opportunities as they come 
And that is a great, great way to live your life, I feel. <laughs> well, it's it's worked for me, but it's not for everyone. Do you know mm. what I mean? Um, yeah. And and I just think, I, as I said, I run exercises on goal setting. I run exercises on, you know, how, how do you – one of the exercises I run is, you know, how would you describe yourself? How would others describe you? How would you like to be described in five years' time? And then someone said to me, have you done this? And I said, no, because it doesn't work for me. Mm. <laughs> and, and they've gone, well, hang on a minute, you do it for us. I said, yeah, I think <laughs> it's a great exercise, but I, I struggle. I personally struggle with it. Do you come across others who struggle with it as well? Yeah, and, and look, I'm working on being less judgmental with people. You know, so it's cool, but what, what, so what do you want from it? And just become curious in other ways. So if you don't mm. want to set goals, you know, what – where what do you want you know what what can you do um and if they say well you know i'm quite happy doing what i'm doing then my view then is well let's continue this conversation and if you still feel the same after a couple of conversations then perhaps that's it just just you know leave you alone and and let you develop at your own pace doing your own thing because you know not everybody wants and you know just exploring people's desires their 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 motivations is is really interesting. But it's got to be about them, not me. You know what I mean? When you're working, particularly as a coach developer, it's not my, my you know, it's not about creating an army of coaches that coach the same way as I do. They they have to they have to figure it out and coach their way and their mm. personalized things to, to 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 make it authentic to them. Um mm. and my role as a as a coach developer, it goes back to my philosophy in life is if I can help somebody make a choice between, say, for instance, coaching, being a directive coach or being non-directive, it's the same person, but they've made a choice based on the situation they're in, the people they're coaching, uh, and, and the different factors, that ability to, to, to move to what's right for them and now, I think that's, that's, that's where I see myself fitting in, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Not to say, yeah. well, you should just tell them what to do, or you should just, well, why didn't you ask more open questions? It's like, you know, tell me what you've experienced about with this. Have you considered the, and, and take that approach? Mm. Well, thank you so much, Nigel. That was such an insightful <coughs> and wonderful. Can I, sorry, can I just say one more thing about this yeah, as well? Yeah, of course. Because, because I, I just, part of me thinks we would be far better getting through this crisis we're in at the moment. If we did allow people, I know the government have said, you know, use common sense. The thing is with common sense, it means that you have to make decisions for yourself and then be accountable for those decisions. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah. And I, and I suppose if, if we were better at it, then then we wouldn't sort of look at this period of time and say either we want more clarity or we want more certainty. Because if it's left to common sense, then actually I know I trust the decisions I'm making are not just good for me, but good for the society and good for the people around me. I think mm. if people did that, I think we would, you know, it would be a good place. You know, yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people sort of rely on being told what to do instead of taking it into I, their own hands. I think so, and certainly that's the, you know one of the things I've heard when people talk about we want more clarity. I think what they're actually saying is we just want more certainty. You know, we want you to tell mm. us what we can and can't do, and I'm thinking that's really interesting. And then they say, you know, use be alert and use use your common sense. And I thought, 
that's interesting as well because that means we have to make a decision as human beings and that those decisions are based on how this affects me how it affects the my loved ones the loved ones around me how it affects the people around me do, do you know what i mean yeah definitely. And, and if you're making decisions on those three things then then i'm sure you know we'll get through this you know and and you know, be better for it at the end Mm. I just found it interesting, Emma. That's all. No, yeah, no, it's a really interesting point. And I think it's important to like listen to as well because it is the unfortunately the what we're what we're stuck with at the moment. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. But thank you so much for right. coming on and I hope that this has been fun for you as interesting as it has for me. <laughs> well I hope I hope it's been um I hope it's been what you wanted. Thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thank you to the extremely talented composer and producer of this podcast, Pete Haff. And a big thank you to you guys at home for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, then please feel free to leave us a review. We absolutely love reading them and it helps more people find us. We'll see you next week.